listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. Welcome, Ganga. It's really wonderful to have you here as a guest on Drishti Point. My pleasure, and thank you for having me. I thought I would start off with asking you one of the quotes that you have on your website is the that the purpose of yoga is to bring about a deep transformation in the individual. And I wanted to ask you if you could start by speaking about the way that yoga has transformed your own life. Well, first of all, when I speak about yoga, I mean, you know, all aspects of yoga, mental, physical, spiritual, and when I first got into yoga, I didn't even know there was a physical aspect. I was more interested in studying my mind and consciousness and mysticism. And uh, it's really a difficult question to answer because I'm sure that on all those levels, and uh, especially physically, yoga's made such an enormous contribution to my life and uh, with with not only from the practices and uh, where it's taken me inwardly and outwardly, but with so many of the people I've met and the places it's taken me, it's I don't think my life would be one hundredth of the expansion and the adventure it's been without yoga. So your first introduction to yoga was through, I would say, the the classical way through the um, meditation part of yoga. Is that right? Yeah, I was interested in exploring consciousness and life and you know I, I started studying with a, uh, a Zoroastrian high priest that was also a teacher of comparative religion so he started teaching Zen and uh, Buddhist philosophy and Hinduism and Zoroastrianism and when he gave a lecture on yoga I was really moved and I wanted to learn it but he hadn't even mentioned the physical part <laughs> And what was it that was your first introduction to the asanas? Well, he um, he gave a few more classes on yoga, and then I wanted to get, which was more philosophical, and I wanted to get more into it. And then he told me to look into the Shivananda organization, which is where I started. And uh, I was kind of astounded that there was a physical part to it, and I thought, well, what does that have to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it all it, it went on from there. And can you speak a little bit about the Shivananda uh, lineage and some of the teachers of that beautiful tradition? Well, I was in that for a few years, and um, I, I went to India and went to the Shivananda ashram and so on. And the teacher I was the closest with was Swami Venkatesh, who was also, uh, we went to Canada together, somewhere near where the Soya retreat's going to be in June. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was phenomenal, and so were many of the teachers. But after a while, I just started, uh, at first I was put up as a model disciple, but then I started questioning, and I my worldview shifted, and I moved on from there. So and, I was only with Shivananda about five years. And what shifted in your worldview? Well, I saw, the first thing that started shifting was I saw a big uh disparity between the teachings and what a lot of the leaders were doing that caused me to start questioning because in the tradition you're not supposed to question 
your gurus too much. So that really shook me up a little bit. And uh, then when I started questioning, you know, and I, you know, I, I saw what I would, what's been termed spiritual materialism, that people who had been repeating their mantra a lot longer or wearing the robes and beads had, you know, incredible amount of self-importance and se- even, if I may say, self-righteousness. So I got kind of turned off to it. And uh, I moved on and started exploring jnana yoga and, and uh, other avenues. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, one of the terms that I see you've coined is an evolutionary approach to yoga. Can you speak a little bit about what exactly you mean when you say an evolutionary approach? Well, there's kind of two ways in which people approach many things and, and yoga also. And one is that they feel that everything was mapped out in the past and the paths uh, to enlightenment or truth were defined and we have to follow those paths and really understand what these ancient teachers said exactly and so on. And the other feels that life is like a quantum soup and it's constantly evolving and changing to new possibilities. So instead of following a roadmap, we really need to awaken our own perception and ability to navigate each moment and see things clearly and find our step each way. And also the fact that uh, yoga is growing and evolving into new possibilities all the time, and it's not just limited by a past prescription. Mm-hmm. Certainly. That's what I that's what I mean by evolutionary. Now, certainly that's been the case in North America where yoga has really taken root. How would you describe the way in which uh, yoga has evolved in North America just in the past 20 years? Well, I think it's had, just like everything else, accelerating evolution. Um, I started yoga 45 years ago, and I, you know, that's been my main focus in life is practicing and teaching and studying. And in that time, it has grown immensely. Even just the asana practice has, you know, by meeting the West and what I call cross-pollinating with science and medicine and uh, psychology and a lot of the health food movement, certainly the roots of those things were there in yoga and the, and the you know, intention to unfold those things in one's life but they've just expanded tremendously. And for a lot of people, they kind of think that yoga always spoke to that and had that content, but it really didn't. It's it's evolved and grown tremendously, and I think yoga is uh, greater and better than it's ever been before. Mm-hmm. Can, you, um, can you speak specifically about how your own practice and your own understanding of yoga has changed? Well, uh, the way I approach my practice is, my asana practice is uh, using the tools of yoga to uh, tune and balance, you know, your body, or I could say body, mind, and spirit. So instead of uh, trying to use my body to attain certain poses or master certain things, Instead, I'm, I'm constantly trying to refine the way I use those poses and the tools that yoga provides to rebalance and keep my body working optimally. And I'm 65 now, and, you know, 
all sorts of things run in my family that are more or less minor problems for me because yoga has, uh, you know, balanced that out. And I know that I'm way stronger and more flexible than I would possibly be. And then, and that other members of my family are that, that I would be without yoga. So my practice has evolved towards getting better at doing that. And I don't have a specific definition of, uh, what a practice is necessarily, so that it's it's constantly changing and evolving. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the other parts of the quote that I mentioned at the beginning was a, an awakening of an intelligence that allows us to respond to life and to respond to the accelerating demands of the life that we lead now. Um, well, that really comes to the the mental part of yoga and the study of consciousness, and to look at what, how we're, you know, what inside our own mental psyche and structure is limiting us and is responding through programming and conditioning, and so it's really a part of self-study, which you might call vichara in yoga or meditation, uh, deprogramming yourself, questioning yourself, observing outwardly and inwardly and uh, really trying to awaken your ability to see clearly all the time which just like waking yourself up every morning it's a constant process you never arrive there (laughs) now you recently wrote a book called yoga beyond belief and you know you were just speaking about uh, waking an intelligence that allows us to go beyond our programming and our conditioning. Um, what Can you speak a little bit about why you titled the book Yoga Beyond Belief? Well, a lot of belief systems uh, sort of tell us that if we, if we can believe a certain way or think a certain way, uh, we will live happily ever after and we will awaken our consciousness. But really, it's more a matter of questioning our beliefs than merely having specific beliefs. So a belief is something that really can divide and uh, create illusion. So, for example, I can believe I can run up this hill, but uh, that doesn't mean I can. So I think it's more relevant to uh, be able to see clearly and respond to what is and what is actually taking place than what I might believe about it. Mm-hmm. And I know, some, I know some people might say, oh my gosh, you know, belief can really help you and expand you. You know, if you believe you can run up the hill, you can. And there's some truth to that. But at a deeper level, uh, belief is something <clears throat> you are uh, holding but you don't really know is true or not. So the beliefs that we may have about enlightenment or about yoga or about nirvana or about any of uh, some of the classical concepts may also need to be examined. And, well, mm-hmm. let's say I believe uh, somebody gives a beautiful talk on enlightenment and I believe they're enlightened, but they... They're not he that he or she may not only be may not be enlightened, but there may not even be any such thing as enlightenment. 
And that's a scary concept philosophically because we've heard so much since the time of the Buddha about enlightenment, and it's, it's a major goal of Eastern philosophy. But do we really know there's any such thing? And what is the nature of it? And should I dedicate my whole life to it according to somebody else's prescription for it? Or is maybe enlightenment a constant process of enlightening yourself of illusions? And there is no end purpose. So if I was going to uh, use the word enlightenment, I would have more of that latter definition that uh, it's not a place like New York that you get to, but it's a constant pra- a constant process of uh, seeing and questioning and uh, freeing yourself from illusion. Mm-hmm. What is one of the main tools of your your practice? Well, uh, I think probably questioning is a a very important tool or inquiry. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we learn as a child that the person who knows it all, the kid who knows it all on the playground is usually uh, someone we avoid. But we tend to um, project the idea of cosmic know-it-alls in our practice but instead, I really, you know, I think questioning is the thing that keeps us young. That's why they say uh, the uh, beginner's mind is the Zen mind. This is a quote from Zen. Or in yoga, they say, "He who knows knows not, and he who knows not knows." Uh, so we tend to think there's a certain knowledge that we need to acquire, but it's really an awakening of perception and seeing that carries us through life. Mm-hmm. And the the various practices of a total yoga give us these tools to awaken that intelligence. Well, the way I look at it is all the tools and practices of yoga are just that, tools. And tools can be positive or negative. You know, and I don't mean this in any kind of bad way about yoga, but even asana-wise... Uh, an asana can really help you, but it also can harm you if that asana isn't right for you. So, uh, all of even I, I apply this even to meditation practices. And there's an, uh, a saying by the founder of modern medicine, one of the founders, Paracelsus, that the difference between a medicine and a poison is dosage. And I think that's a profound insight that. You know, we want to, is a knife good or is a knife bad? You really want to learn to use the knife properly and for the right thing. Mm-hmm. So that, because it can, it, it's one of the most valuable tools we have, but it also is a very dangerous tool because of its power. So I think all the practices of yoga, physical, mental, spiritual, can be, uh, are like tools we use to, we learn to use properly in the right dosage for ourselves. Now, I'd like to come back to that point, but we'll first take a music break to listen to some music. Thank you. Welcome back, Ganga. We've, before the break, we were talking specifically about how the different tools of yoga can be both harmful and both beneficial. You know, recently there was an article that appeared, I believe, in the New York Times about the effects, the detrimental effects that yoga can have, and certainly it seems to be the case 
these days that there's a lot more yoga injuries happening. How can one understand, um, how can someone, what are the ways maybe that yoga in North America may be practiced in a way that may be harmful? Well, that book caused an international sensation with the article, How Yoga Can Wreck Your Body, but uh, which was kind of sensationalized. But I think it was really a, a very important contribution, and the book itself was actually very positive towards yoga and was saying something similar to what we've been discussing, that we have to learn and evolve our use of the yoga practices. And... Uh, there's there's a lot of aggressive practice in yoga, especially by young people. You know, and I was one too, I don't just mean young person, but an aggressive practicer, and I did, you know, most of those most extreme poses and so on, and I'm paying some prices for some of them. Because if you're pushing your body to extreme limits of movement and flexibility, the extreme literally means you're very near the edge or the limit of injury. And and wearing and stressing those joints. So one of the things we, one of the foundational principles we try to instill in our students is yoga practices, asanas, are tools you learn to, to use better to serve your body. It's not a sport, it's not a performance art, it's something you're learning to do to refine a process for living better and living gracefully for the rest of your life. And a big part of that is learning how to read and experience the feedback and the effects of the different postures and the different poses. So instead of saying somebody saying, well, my teacher said the back bend does this, you learn to feel what that back bend is doing to your body and uh, use it properly. Mm -hmm. So it's the component of self-awareness that helps us to develop the wisdom to use these tools properly. Exactly, but it's it's a mixture. Um, you know, we have two eyes and two ears, and to navigate anything in nature and in, in the universe, you need two different perspectives. And one way, you know, I point that out in Yoga Beyond Belief, is that you have the perspective of your teachers, and the external information, which people teach you and demonstrate in books that show poses and things, but then you have also the internal information and feedback from what your own body is telling you. And we've learned recently that, you know, we all know everybody's body's a little different, but joint structure is different, uh, ratios between limbs and spine and legs are different. So a uh, person has to listen also to internal messages and feedback and learn how to do that so they can be guided from within and from the teacher as two different navigation points that balance each other. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about the um, bridging of the inner and outer or the necessity of having both uh, external feedback and internal feedback. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Very important. Now you also mentioned uh, meditation in that context as well that you know a medicine can be both a poison or a medicine depending on dosage 
how can we understand a meditation practice maybe not not being suitable well that's a little more difficult because it's the inward journey but really i feel the same truth applies to that and uh in, in the same ways with asanas, there are literally thousands and thousands of meditation techniques of all different types and forms. So if one really were sort of trying to find the right one for oneself, it would get very complicated and difficult. But so what I like to do is divide meditation into, which I, you know, I feel it really helps people clarify it, is divide it into two broad areas. One is the most important, and that is your life. Your entire life is your main meditation. Everything you do and every, th every part of your life is a form of meditation, meaning something that brings awakening and insight and the growth of uh, awareness and wisdom. So to bring consciousness and uh, love and beauty into your life is your primary meditation. And that tends to put every, any other meditation technique into balance. And usually when we talk about meditation techniques, we're talking about sitting practices. Right. So sit, so you can experiment with them. We, we're very non-regimented in our approach. Uh, experiment, listen to the feedback, try it for several months, uh, try different things, and you, you develop your own navigation system for finding your way through sitting practices, realizing that you're your life is your primary meditation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So kind of bridging the, um, or going beyond the, the classical idea of meditation and broadening it so that it's understood that that concentration and awareness that can come from a, a sitting practice can be applied to all of the activities we do throughout the day. I think so. Uh, meditation... Uh, can have a beginning, but it doesn't have to have an end. Mm -hmm. That's very beautifully put. Very beautifully put. Thank you. Are there any particular teachers that ins are your inspiration at this time in your life? Um, the wind, the water, nature, my relationships. <laughs> uh, I find teachers everywhere I look. You know, there's that old saying, when the student is ready, the teaching, the teacher will appear. But I found it to be when the student is ready, the teaching appears everywhere you look. Mm -hmm. I think we're surrounded by teachers. And sometimes, you know, it might be an, a yoga teacher or uh, someone else exploring consciousness that gives me some insight. I have a couple very close friends who I hold in really high regard that I think you know, that may not even be that known, but I think they have some of the highest awareness I've encountered, so I'm lucky to have those uh, feedback mechanisms. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe if you could just speak a little bit about the aspect of relationship, how relationship can be a, a, a way for us to deepen our own practice. Well, you know, I've heard some old yogis say that uh, whenever any any of us, when we're alone, are saints. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very easy, to, <laughs> very easy to be saintly by when you're by yourself. Mm -hmm. But uh, in relationships 
relationships are our mirror. And, you know, I don't just mean your, quote, relationship, but uh, all your relations, as, as the Native Americans used to say, even with the birds and the plants, all your relations are your mirror and your, our mirror and our teacher. So, uh, and our close relationships give us a lot of feedback and polishing. We all know that from, you know, our family and friends and uh, mates, etc. That's where we learn the most, and sometimes learning isn't always blissful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. As a, as a matter of fact, that's a really important point that I, you know, I learned from science is we hear a lot of talk about perfection in Eastern philosophy, attaining perfection. And I've kind of deprogrammed that out of my worldview. Uh, <clears throat> the, the world is full of imperfection, and you, know, you could say that is the perfection of it. It's the, even in art, it's the imperfection that makes the art and the music. So you know, we beat ourselves up so much for our imperfections, but and our mistakes, but if we look back on our biggest growth experiences, they're usually mistakes. Mm -hmm. So evolution and life moves forward through error and correction and uh, moving on to new possibilities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a very uh, beautiful way of, of describing the process of life. <laughs> uh, you know, is there, um, do you have any, any aspirations or hopes for what you would like to see in the way that yoga is practiced in North America in the coming years? Well, you know, yo they say 18 million people in North America are practicing, so I don't think there'll be any one way or homogenizing of the yoga. But I just would like people to, you know, stop being so goal-oriented and just start seeing yoga as a process that they refine for their whole life and take the anxiety and the, the aggression out of it to attain deeper poses or, you know, what's called more perfect poses. And to see the perfect pose as that which is best for your body in that, that day according to your entire lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and... I like to try and get people to be less dogmatic. It's much more freeing and much more fun to be open-minded. <laughs> yes, and you know, just to uh, what you were just saying about poses that are right for us, one of the things that you often talk about in your blog is developing a practice to sustain a lifetime. And I think that's a beautiful view of practicing that that's an important point i think and it speaks to what we're discussing in that you know we're all getting older and you don't think about it a lot in your 20s or even 30s maybe but still your body's aging and you want to you know it's like somebody gave you a car and said when you're 16 and this is going to be the only car you had for the rest of your life how you would take care of that and mm -hmm. that is true of our bodies Certain, we do change our cells every seven years, they say, but still, uh, we don't want to wear it out. And I think yoga, instead of being a performance art, uh, that you're trying to attain these advanced poses, you're, we instead shift to using the poses to have a beautiful lifetime 
and to stay strong and flexible and mobile to the 70s and 80s and 90s and maybe beyond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it's really the tools for a journey. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is your, what are the ways in which your yoga practice, I would say, has opened you up also to the, the um, way of seeing yoga as a, an offering to the world? Well, the one form of yoga there's very little argument about is karma yoga, which is service. Service to each other, service within your business, service in the way you do everything, and to the needy, whether it's the planet, the environment, the, the poor, the elderly, etc. And uh, I think one of the thing, beauties of hatha yoga is it's about self-healing and learning to take care of your own body. And when that happens, you start naturally having that overflow towards other people and wanting to help them and assist them in their process. And really, uh, in meditation, I, I hesitate because I mean that meditation in the sense of really seeing and expanding your vision to include nature and the planets and the universe, you really see that we're that when we say ourself, we are in a separate self. And I don't mean this spiritually or metaphysically, but actually we are connected, we are part of a matrix of everything. So when you learn to serve yourself within yoga, you start seeing that self as everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that connection to nature is maybe one of the most important, and I think one of the most important definitions of meditation is the nature meditation, because this is our home, and uh, I don't have to say much about what's happening to it, and we really have to take care of our larger body, which is planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And I know that the White Lotus Foundation is involved in some ecological and environmental projects. Would you like to say a few words about that? Well, we really try to work most directly at the root. We've, we've worked some with the rainforest in Brazil and with the Rainforest Foundation. And, but our, our really our main focus on that is our retreat center in Santa Barbara is in a beautiful natural canyon with swimming holes and waterfalls and you know, uh, foxes and raccoons and hawks flying by. And when you get in that kind of an environment, which is where we, you know, we teach retreats and workshops and teacher training, we tell people on day one that the, the environment and the elements of nature and the animals and the birds and the wind and the waters are, are more of the teachers than we are. And mm. people living in that beautiful environment, wherever it is, uh, helps them to tune into nature and serving the planet. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, a beautiful um, description of the karma yoga, yoga that your organization is involved with. Thank you so much for being a guest here on Drishti Point. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners that might inspire them in their yoga practice? Well, my wife Tracy and I are very excited to be coming up to Canada to the Soya Retreat in June at Naramata, and that's an extraordinary area, as you all know. You, I mean, that whole 
British Columbia is a blessing to be able to live up there and that beauty and power. Mm-hmm. So I hope people can join us. And um, I don't know how much time do we have left. We have a few minutes left. Well, I I would just uh, summarize a little by saying that you know yoga is the constant alchemy of your life. Alchemy in the sense of transforming darkness into light and learning to deal with uh, self-healing and injuries and problems that will inevitably be bumps in the road along the way. And uh, with the tools and teachings of yoga, you're able to learn how to heal yourself and rebalance yourself. And uh, you have your entire life. We, we all have our entire lifetimes to do it and to learn it and to refine it. So I think part of enlightenment is lightening up and enjoying the journey and uh, making mistakes and giving up perfection and just uh, keep adjusting your ship as you sail the seas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you uh, again for sharing your time with us on Drishti Point, and uh, we hope that you, know, you find a very receptive audience in Naramata. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it and keep smiling and laughing. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.